Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Today's scripture reading is 1 Peter verses 2. I'm sorry. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 19 through 25. For this is commendable, if because of the conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if When you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth? Who? When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we have died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God is good all the time. Next time, put a little more into that. You know, maybe you haven't had your coffee either. That's okay. You may remember when we were children learning our ABCs or how to make words, we would have sheets given to us by our teachers and there would be an outline there. And what we were supposed to do was to use our crayons or our pencils or whatever instrument we had. And we were supposed to draw that outline. And that's how we would learn to write our ABCs. And uh, even when you get a little bit further in, and I don't know if they teach this still or not, but when I think I was in the fourth grade and I was so excited to learn to write in cursive. And so we had those sheets again. Here's how you make an uppercase cursive A and a lowercase and, and all that. And then here's how you make words. So you've got this notion of a faint outline and you would draw it in to show what it was actually supposed to be. In verse 21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That word translated example there is that notion in Greek of an outline that you, that you trace and draw in to fill it in. And it's the only time that this word is ever used in all of the New Testament. So that makes it something worth noting. So when you think about it, Jesus is our example. He's that faint outline. And what we have to do is conform ourselves to fit into who he was. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Peter sets up this entire portion that we're going to look at with verses 11 and 12. 
He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we've already noted in this particular letter, the context is one of suffering. They're in what's modern day Turkey, that country, and it's a vast area. But they're suffering because of this Christian faith and because they're not doing how they had always done. So in the ancient times, you would have had the gods of the empire. You would have had the gods of the local city. You would have had your household gods. And this was as much a part of the political life as it was the religious life of ancient people. But now this new group of people that calls themselves by the name of their leader, Christian, Christ, they're doing things different. They refuse to show up and worship at the shrines and the temples to honor the gods of the empire. And when the local area has its festivities, they refuse to show up even for that. And they've been asked why, and they said, there's only but one God, and His Son, Jesus Christ, is our Savior. And so, oh, you don't care about the empire? You don't care about the locality? You don't care about your ancestors? And so they're, they're seen as odd. And because they don't fit in with everybody else, they're mistreated, maligned, and abused. The goal of a Christian isn't to fit in. It's to be different as they were, to stand out, to be something other. And there are three ways, three areas that, that Peter points out to where if you live a Christian life, if you're faithful to God, you may suffer. And the first of those may be at the hand of government. Look at verses uh, 13 through 17. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance. Institution is probably a better translation. Submit yourselves to every institution of man for the Lord's sake, whether to a king is supreme or a governor, as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So because the religion of the state was tied in with the politics of the state, you know, their, their lack of involvement in the way they did things or didn't partake of certain things would have garnered the notice of the authorities. There are second century texts that are written that show that... Uh, Office, uh, excuse me, governors and, and various po politicians would take the Christians and they would make them renounce Christ and offer incense on the altar to Caesar or to whoever. And they say, if you do these things, then we won't, we won't torture you or kill you. But there were many who didn't. They refused to bow down to the gods of the empire, to Caesar himself, and the result of that was they were going to be persecuted. They were going to suffer many times very brutal forms of death. Crucifixion was one method. There's another to where, as harsh as it sounds, they would be tied to the stake, to a stake, sometimes burned alive, or sometimes tied to that stake and 
incisions made along their person, and then wild animals, a boar or a lion, would be set loose to devour a Christian while they suffered and as they lived. So, naturally, when a government is tyrannical, the first thing we all want to do is rise up. Rise up and fight. Uh, that's how our country came into existence, as a matter of fact. But here, in their time, Peter says, you know, just submit yourself to the ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it's to a king as supreme or to governors, or as to those sent by him for punishment of evildoers. You know, it, it would betray the teaching of Jesus, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. It would betray the teachings of Jesus and the heart of the Lord to do anything but that. As hard as it is, even though maybe you're suffering at the hands of the government, uh, remember the example that Jesus gave. He too suffered at the hands of government. He was unlawfully arrested. He was put through a sham of a trial. He was falsely accused. Then... He was given a death sentence. You know, I'm always cautious about capital punishment because that was the very way that Jesus died. It was a misuse, a miscarriage of justice. Now, how did Jesus live through all those things? Did he rise up in rebellion? Did he revile those who reviled him? Did he threaten them? No. He committed himself, as was read a second ago, he committed himself to God who he knew would take care of everything. You don't like hearing this, and I don't like saying it, but these are the words of the Lord. So when there's suffering through government, Peter says, just cool yourselves, just calm down. You can decide to be an American. You can decide to be a Christian. Sometimes those two come into conflict. And in the end, which will you choose? Hopefully the answer for us is easy. We choose Christ. Even as difficult as sometimes that it may seem. Some of the suffering was from the government, but violent resistance would not resolve anything. And it would defy Jesus' command to love your enemies. Secondly, and this one isn't as much contemporary, though a lot of preachers would make it to where they would say, let's substitute masters for employers. But I don't think you can make that change because a slave couldn't just up and choose a new master. Uh, an employee can. But let's look at what he says to them in verses 18 through 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongful. For what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So in those days, you know, slavery didn't begin with the United States of America. Slavery is something that has existed almost since the dawn of man. Anytime you conquered a people, guess what? Their people became your slaves. And it was a, it was a part of civilization 
for centuries up until the last couple hundred years ago. So we can be thankful that it has ended, at least in some regard, but slavery still exists in the world. There are parts of the world to where people can still be owned as slaves. But in this context, a slave would be someone who uh, maybe was a criminal. It could be someone who had indebted themselves so badly that they are given as a slave. Sometimes a person would uh, voluntarily make themselves a slave so that the one to whom they enslaved themselves would do something. I, I remember reading about when some, some of the Irish came over to America uh, from their homeland in Ireland. They, they made themselves indentured servants for a period of years. And they did that because they couldn't afford the fare to get on the boat and to go all the way to the New World. And so they found someone who would pay the cost and they would work for them for four or five years. And after that time, they would be free. So there are a lot of different reasons that a person became a slave. But if a person was a slave, uh, Paul says, excuse me, Peter says, be submissive to your masters, not only to the ones that are good, but also to the harsh. Again, you don't like hearing that and I don't like saying it. You know, if a person is good to us, it's understandable that we would want to be submissive. But when they're harsh... Our pride sometimes gets in the way and doesn't want for us to suffer in that way. But we see that there are some slaves throughout the New Testament. Uh, you have the book of Philemon that details a Christian master whose slave had absconded with some of his master's good and left, but yet he encountered Paul and became a Christian and then returned to his master. So this is where sometimes that people found themselves and verse 23, when he was reviled, didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So he's saying to that slave, if you have a harsh master, you keep on being the good servant. Remember, as Jesus committed himself to the Father who would take care of everything, so you too also commit yourself to the Father because Jesus committed himself to the Father when he suffered unjustly by way of government and by those who sought to have mastery over him. The third that he identifies is home. Let me explain how this might have worked. Let's say that, uh, let's say you have a, a husband, a wife, and several children. A lot of the converts in early Christianity were, they were women, they were uh, slaves, many of them. Some of them were very, what, what you would call low-born. And so there was actually an accusation that critics of Christianity made in the second century. They would say, well, you know, it's really not that good of a religion because look at the people that you attract. You have a bunch of slaves and women, right? Now, if you said that today, that would be not so kosher to hear, but it was very much a patriarchal society then. But you have to admit as well, there were some wealthy people that converted. You know, each of those that are written about who housed the church in their home, those are some well-to-do Christians. But let's say that you have a family, a husband, a wife, two children, maybe some servants there. Now, it was, it was more natural that whatever the father believed, that's what everybody went along with. You know, for example, when uh, uh, the Philippian jailer converted to faith, his whole household converted. You see, you know, patriarchalism, you know, can be bad in many ways, but in some ways were good. 
The fathers led their houses, and the wives and children looked to the father to lead their houses well. And so it was, you read in the book of Acts, several occasions of household conversions. Uh, The Philippian jailer, Cornelius, that's because everyone looked to the head of the household as to what was right and what to do. But it was sometimes that maybe you had the wife who came across one of her friends who had converted to the faith. And so maybe she hears or meets Peter. And here's the good news. And she decides to convert, but she goes back home and there her husband still has his beliefs. They still have their little shrine in a corner of the house with their ancestral gods. And when the family comes together to burn incense or to pray, asking their favors, mom's not there. That's odd. Mom, where's mom? So husband would go and go, what, where, you know, you know, it's the time where we go and we invoke our ancestors and the ancestral gods. And she says, yeah, I can't do that. Why can't you do this? Because I have believed in Jesus the Christ and I'm now his follower. Now the husband would probably say something, that's fine, you can be his follower. Because to them in the ancient world, Sure, add one more God to all the ones you already worship. No big deal. But she would say, no, this Jesus, the anointed, is the son of the one and true only God. And he demands that we worship him alone and no idols. That would create some tension in the household. And so how do you navigate that? Well, this is what Peter says. Chapter 3, verse 1 Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of of their wives. That's a pretty tall order. And, you know, that's still uh, something that exists today. There are still uh, households where a mother or a father are a Christian and the other may not be. You have the ability and the opportunity to be a missionary in your own house. If you're the wife that is a, a Christian, uh, the mother and a wife that is the Christian, you know, Paul, Peter, well, I'll get it right. This Peter wrote this, but I keep saying Paul because I'm so used to saying Paul. Peter says, be submissive to your husbands that if they don't obey the word, they might be won by your conduct. They might be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. I love the way he puts that. And you know, even in our own time, everyone is concerned with appearances. Some of you, and it's not a criticism, but, you know, some folks dye their hair. Women, you put on war paint, excuse me, makeup. My people would have called it war paint, but you put on makeup. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's, it's nice when you, when you make up and, you know, get gussied up, as my grandfather would have said. Nothing, he's not criticizing making yourself up. But don't put too much emphasis on it. You could be so beautiful and handsome by appearance, but inwardly you could be the ugliest person alive. 
And you know there's nothing that makes a handsome man uglier or a beautiful woman uglier than their character. And so Paul... I need to start slapping my hand every time I say Paul. Peter... I'm going to say Cephas. I'm going to just say Cephas. Our brother Peter back then, he says, look, don't let it be merely outward. It can be outward. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That is very precious in the sight of God. So make sure the character is as such that God is pleased. And he goes on, for in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. <laughs> yeah. What, Tina, you going to start calling David Lord? Uh, yeah, yeah. Cindy, you going to start calling Kenneth Lord? Yeah. Well, some of us don't believe in following the Bible, do we? As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughter you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. I don't, and I could be wrong, I don't believe that it's precisely expected that you call them Lord. That, that may have been their way of saying sir uh, or ma'am back in those days. Uh, I think if you had to take a main point from it is, you know, speak with respect towards your husband. And here's the thing that I've learned. Um, my daddy told me when I was young, he said, son, I'm going to give you a, a, a piece of advice. Okay, what's that? He said, don't ever try to understand a woman. And I, you know, I'm curious because I'm like 18. I go, why? He's like, you can't understand them. So what do you do? You just love her. Make sure she feels loved. And on the flip side, men just want to be respected. So if you've got a Christian wife who is very disrespectful to her husband, her conduct is not going to win him over. But if she's chaste and if she's a modest person in her character, you got a good chance that you'll win him over to the Lord. And, and we all know people who uh, uh, a, a lady will marry a man and, and she's a Christian and he's not, but he eventually becomes a Christian. I know many preachers, many elders, many deacons for whom that's their story. They became Christians. They obeyed the gospel and their wives were the ones that led them there. But he also addresses husbands. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. When you watch a little boy play and say he has his figures, one of the things that you'll probably notice if they're little uh, uh, figurines, they're fighting or doing something violent. Or if he has cars, he's crashing them into one another. Right? That's just what little boys tend to do. But now you have a little girl, and she has a doll. What is she going to do? She's going to comb her doll's hair. If she learns how to, maybe she'll braid it. Maybe she has a little setup to where she has a tea party with her doll and some other animals, because that's typically how little girls are. One of the things that I read recently, I thought that was, this was very interesting. Uh, several hundred years ago in France, you know, before we had uh, glasses for drinking cups, every, it was like copper or uh, some other metal. 
And so it was tough enough that the rough old men could just drink it and it'd be fine. But the reason that these thin-stemmed glasses were created was to teach men how to be gentler. Because you pick that thin stem up with its liquid to drink it and you break it. But that's why that, I, I thought, well, that's a pretty... And you don't care about this tidbit of information, but I thought it was pretty fascinating. The whole reason that was created was to teach a man to be gentler. And this is what Peter is exhorting husbands. Live with them with understanding, giving honor. Now, I guarantee that the one thing that some of y'all only heard was the bit where he says, as to the weaker vessel. In our time, that's not popular to say. But she's not weaker morally or intellectually. But her physical stature Created by God, she is the weaker vessel. But if you're so hung up on that, look at what he says right before it. Giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. That is, be aware that she is not a man. Be aware that, that she is of a certain makeup, that there are things that she will prioritize, that she will be good at, and honor her for those things. You know, everybody grew up probably with different uh, households. Some of us probably grew up a lot alike. Uh, Mama took care of the house. That's just how it was. Anything inside was her domain unless it was broke, and then that was daddy's domain. Come fix it. But everything outside, the yard, the, the, you know, the, the, the poultry, all the chickens we had, um, mowing the grass, chopping the wood, and all that stuff, that was mine and dad's domain. And so here's what, do y'all know this? You don't care, and I'll get on to the point in a second. I do not cook. I don't even grill. Because my mom always cooked. And then when I moved out on my own, I would eat out, or I would go back to my mom's house or to Stephanie's house, because her mama cooked too. And then I married Stephanie, and guess what? Stephanie cooked. I've never had to cook. But I can sure eat, I tell you. Some of you go, huh, that's backwards or whatever. I, I know we're not as, we're, we're old Neanderthals in my family. But the thing is, you know, we would do our various jobs. We did have roles. I know people don't like to acknowledge that, that that was, you know, we believe that the father was to be the provider and the protector of the family. That doesn't mean that mama can't work. Mama can work too. He provides and protects, and you know what she did? She nurtures. Now, could she provide and protect? Yeah, that's possible. Could he nurture? Yeah, it's possible. But that was how it was when I grew up. Maybe you grew up similarly to that. So what I love, and I even love this about my daughter and my wife, they fix up and they look real pretty, but they don't mind putting on muck boots and overalls and getting out and getting dirty. That's a fine woman right there to me. Two of my proudest moments was when my daughter years ago obeyed the gospel. And a few years ago, my son obeyed the gospel. 
Bree was down at New Concord Church of Christ. Cole was right here at Glendale Road. So I credit Callaway County with being a place where my kids came to faith and obeyed the gospel. And I'm very grateful for that. And you know, by being submissive to government, by being submissive to masters, to husbands, to wives, if they are not of the faith, the way we conduct ourselves may be the tipping point that helps them to come to want to know more about Jesus. You are preaching a sermon every day of your life. When you're around people, you're preaching a sermon, not necessarily with words, but by your actions. You are the missionary. Your home, your work, your school is your mission field. The people you are around and that are around you, that's your mission field. And your conduct can be the one thing that helps them come to want to know Jesus more or push them away from Him. I tell you those two proudest moments because as a preacher, I've been in ministry for 17 years, had the opportunity to study with a lot of folks, to baptize a lot of people, um, but the, the three greatest baptisms I ever performed. First one was Stephanie. She was 17, I was 18. First baptism I ever did. My son and my daughter. I've baptized a lot as well. Had a lot of studies and helped a lot of people come to that point of obedience. But what if I had only done that and not those three? You know, when Noah got on the ark, the only people that got on with him were his wife and children. I want to tell you how to be saved if you're not already. So don't rustle around. Don't pack up. Bear with me a second. I promise you're not going to miss out on anything by packing up early. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I think when we develop a love for God, we better understand what He did for us. And when we understand what He did for us, I hope that that develops that love even more. God came to earth in the flesh as His Son. He gave His life to save us from the consequences of our sins, which is eternal death. God says, I'd rather suffer and die so that you don't have to. And that's what a father does. A father will sacrifice, a father will suffer, and even die for his children. When that love grows in you, you begin to believe in God and Jesus. That's called faith. You're developing faith. And as that faith grows, and it's not over a period of time, it can be instant. Once you come to the realization, you will confess, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I'll tell you right now, those words are an act of rebellion. It's an act of rebellion in a world where uh, plurality, postmodernism, and live as you wish, call it what you may, is just running amok. You want to be a a rebel, confess Jesus as Lord. Not only are you stating this faith to the world, you're stating it to those in the heavenly places. We all must repent. 
That is, we change our minds and our actions. And that's the part that's probably the hardest about salvation because it's not a one-time thing. You and I will repent the rest of our lives because we'll do something, say something, and we'll go, whoops, I shouldn't have done that or said that. Or, and you'll go to the Father in prayer and you'll say, Father, forgive me of my trespasses. I repent. I've sinned. Please forgive me. That's just part of it. But it's also an initial part of it. And then we all have to be born again of water and spirit. That is immersed in the waters of baptism. And when we do that, having this faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit makes us a member of the body of Christ. We have then become Christian and we follow Jesus. And everything that follows is us doing our best effort to obey him. I'll be the first to tell you, I'm a failure. I I was having a conversation with someone the other day. Uh, John Wayne brought a friend by the house. His name was Elijah. He introduced me to Elijah and we talked. I said, hey, Elijah, that's a good biblical name. And he stopped for a second and John said, yeah, why don't you go ahead and ask him? He said, well, okay. Elijah did. He said, I believe in God and Jesus, um, but here's, here's a hang-up that I have. And so he, you know, he asked about his hang-up and we discussed it at length. One of the things that I told Elijah, I said, uh, I said, you know, Elijah, a lot of us are discouraged by other Christians. People that call themselves Christians, but that don't live as they should. I said, here's, here's the reality. Some of us admittedly are hypocrites. We say these things, but we purposely go out and act contrary to them. I said, but Elijah, the majority of us aren't hypocrites. We're just failures. So if you're thinking, I can't do it because I'll never be great enough, the good thing is you don't have to be great enough because God is good. And because God is good, you come to him as you are. And he makes you what you need to be. If you could be good enough, Jesus would have never had to die. But guess what? He had to because I, you cannot be good enough. So humble yourselves before the Lord. Obey the gospel if you have not. You can come as we stand and sing.